This is an RNZ podcast. This is Media Watch. I'm Colin Peacock with the final Media Watch for 2022. And it was a year in which Silicon Valley moguls, including the big beasts like Musk and Zuckerberg, found their fortunes foundering, along with the value of their media assets and their reputations. They're also now copping critical coverage in the media after years of praise and positivity from a press that's been often overly impressed with their innovations over recent years. After what we've seen over the past few months, I think we finally need to admit once and for all that these people are idiots. And they have been the entire time. Hayden Donnell looks at that reversal of fortunes later. But first, let's say goodbye and good riddance to 2022 in the media. You might have some suggestions for our very last show of the year. We might do Radio I Spy, we might not. I don't know if I'm fitting the love for it. It was quite hard to organise. We might get abandoned. I don't think that'll work. That was News Talk ZB's Nights host Marcus Lush there asking his audience how to jazz up his final show of the year. A question we've been asking ourselves here at Media Watch for this, our final show of 2022. Now we decided against getting abandoned too, or Radio I Spy, whatever that is, but we do agree with Marcus on this. Let's face it, for most of us, by the end of the year, we're kind of done and dusted, aren't we? It's like, oh, well, yep, come on. And plenty of people are indeed feeling done and dusted already by a fairly bruising and COVID-coloured year. Now, some of those who are paid to be opinion generators in our media weren't shy of predicting what was to come in 2022. Jacinda Ardern will step down as Labour Party leader before Christmas, picks Rachel Smalley in her column this week. Rachel, bold claim. <laughs> it is. Uh, but, you know, I think when you weigh up everything and the more I was thinking and the more I was writing, it seems um, that it will absolutely be the only option open to Jacinda Ardern. A bold claim indeed from NBR columnist Rachel Smalley back in October when she wrote this. If I had to bet my house on it, I would pick Jacinda Ardern to announce that she is stepping down before Christmas. Well, Christmas is still one week away, but Jacinda Ardern seems likely to make it still firmly in charge, in spite of how much Rachel Smalley has been thinking and writing. And Rachel Smalley told the NBR this at that time back in October. You know, it's time to jump now. Um, also, she has one child who, uh, and may only have one child, you know, and the years are ticking on. So, you know, I imagine there's a desire in her too to have a little bit more time to herself in the immediate next year or two. Well, we won't ask you to bet the house on it, Rachel, but uh, we will most certainly <laughs> watch with interest. Now, that same day that Rachel Smalley first wrote the PM would jump by Christmas, she also aired another interesting opinion as early morning host at Today FM. Look, it's probably not the most foolproof idea I've ever had as such. Why don't we ban, for the short term, hoodies and malls? Just put security at the door, and if you're wearing a hoodie, you can't come in. Though one problem with that is that the mall is a place where people go to buy hoodies in the likes of Helen Stein's, Glasson's and Kmart. Like a fair number of the opinions on talk radio aired just to create more content and engagement for themselves. Even on the network which launched at the start of the year loudly promising news that moves us forward in the booming voice of Paul Henry who also told Today FM listeners this. When we make mistakes, we'll admit it. Good to know. Well after its first year, the station that wants to move us forward is well behind its talk radio rival in the ratings, but on News Talk ZB you'll also find plenty of opinionated speculation about politicians who might be on the way out, like this just last week. I know personally there's a bunch of cabinet ministers who know they're gone, but it'll be interesting to see how many and what those names are next week. 
It's odd that he would tell the listeners that last week, but then make them wait till this week when the ministers themselves announced it to find out who they were. It's cool to be in the loop, but not if you keep the scoop under wraps. Unless, of course, you're playing some sort of long game of preserving important relationships with political players, though that's unlikely to be the issue for Mike Hosking as far as this government is concerned. The Prime Minister decided to scrap her weekly interviews with Mike Hosking right at the start of 2022 after a hostile hectoring too many, and the lack of feeling and the lack of respect is mutual, it seems. Here's Barry, who was summoned to Her Majesty's high chair yesterday. ZB's political editor Barry Soper did get an end-of-year interview with Jacinda Ardern last week, which went like this. If you look at the lower listenership for Radio New Zealand, it's clearly coming to News Talk ZB. Do you uh, think that maybe it's time that you reviewed uh, going on the most popular breakfast show in the country uh, on Monday mornings? Quite comfortable with my arrangements. Well, RNZ National's audience actually bounced back a little on the latest audience survey, while Mike Hosking's fell a bit. But a lot of people do listen to him on ZB, no doubt. But how did Mike Hosking take the news that he'd been knocked back again by the Prime Minister for the foreseeable future? She shunned me again. Quite comfortable with my arrangements. Anything else? Thanks. Now, Mike's sobbing there over that snub from what he called Her Majesty in the High Chair was clearly synthetic, though when Her Actual Majesty died in the UK in September... Mike Hosking. It's very upsetting, isn't it? I mean, it's end of an era. I don't know that I can... I don't... Just give me a couple minutes. Now, News Talk ZB then morselised that moment online and urged the browsing audience to click on that clip of Mike Hosking choking up behind the mic. And that's a heartless exploitation of a deep moment of private grief for Mike, assuming those tears were sincere. It's so hard to tell. Now, the funeral of QE2 in September was almost as big a media event as the FIFA World Cup that's on right now. And as a huge royal lover, Mike Hosking would have been as awestruck as veteran lovey Joanna Lumley with another media first from beyond the grave, Queen Elizabeth II appearing virtually in her own funeral procession. A representation of the Queen as she came back from her coronation wearing the imperial state crown and holding the scepter and the orb, waving to those who are on either side of the mouth. So it's a hologram that's been created especially, Joanna. It's pretty cool, isn't it? It's fantastic. And it's in black and white, which makes it even more sort of eerily thrilling in a funny way. And to think that the Queen, maybe at Windsor still, is sitting and seeing that. And as someone used to seeing things in black and white, we assume Mike Hosking loved that hologram wrought from old footage, assuming he could see it through his misty eyes. But when the Prime Minister gave Hosking the swerve back in late February, both had bigger things to worry about. After a mostly COVID-free summer, the Omicron variant stormed the borders, activating the government's red traffic light. Though not everyone was getting the warning. That Omicron is not serious. You're not serious, Joe. Joe, can you promise me one thing? Yeah. Never ring again. OK. Bye. Thanks. Appreciate it. Still, with the experience of the 2020 and 2021 lockdowns behind us, and the vast majority of us vaxxed, this time, surely we knew how to keep calm and carry on? The Panadol section is actually not a single Panadol. It's just nothing. There's no lozenges, no lozenges. Oh dear, the panic purchase of pack-and-save Panadol all over again, and this time there was a picnic at Parliament that outstayed its welcome as well. 
More on that in a minute. Now, businesses were clearly not ready for the big sick that followed among their staff and for labour shortages blamed on young people who don't want to work. And then there were squabbles over working from home and so-called quiet quitting. And all that partly explained the long and loud claims in the media to open up the country and short and loud ones on that from media personalities. Open this country the hell up and get a move on. News Hub's Patrick Gower there, and he was echoed by News Talk ZB's Nick Mills, one of many pundits who turned on the experts and their lifestyles. Michael Baker, let us get on with our lives. You go back to your lab. Do some intelligent work. Get paid truckloads of money for doing it and live in an extremely flash house. But for me, I don't want to hear from you anymore. And the feeling was probably mutual. Well, another urging the government to open up to the world, even if it meant more COVID cases, was News Talk ZB's Kate Hawksby, though she was a lot less gung-ho when she became one of them. I have empathy in spades now for anyone suffering actually any kind of sickness. You know, to feel so debilitated and discombobulated and unable to control your own health outcome, that is a terrifying and awful feeling. And I also learned we're not as, in, as invincible as we think we are. I thought I was such a healthy person. And when the vaccine mandates began to end in April, broadcaster Duncan Garner had trouble internalising that complicated situation in his head out loud on air on Today FM. I always feel like it's a big hoax. It always feels like we've been played. We've been played. And boy, if I'd known that, I would have protested. Now that was fairly close to the views of some of those who took over the parliament in March, but that convoy of protest wasn't taken all that seriously at first by the critics, who dubbed it the clownvoy. But once it took over the parliamentary grounds, it became clear it wasn't going to be easy to shift, and it attracted an unexpected mix of people ready to put a stake in the ground, or a tent, and eventually plumb a toilet stall and showers into the mains on Molesworth Street, right outside the High Court. Now, to some, all this was a noxious Nuremberg rally type of thing, which had violent overtones and was even flavoured with fascism, while others painted it as merely a kind of wholesome and harmless food, music and yoga sort of expo. But even the highly organised campaigners and organisers of it, like Voices for Freedom, were cast as merely parents who were into wellness by some in the media. You guys started it, yeah? The three of you? Three mums. Three mums. Voices for Freedom is one of the key players at the protest. Now, later in the year, Voices for Freedom were encouraging people to stand for the local elections, but to hide their affiliation to the group, though who wouldn't want to associate with just three mums? Now, while the media had mixed messages about the protesters, the protesters seemed to have a fairly set view of the media as part of their problem. And among those targeted was TVNZ's Kristen Hall. Uh, for some people, you're still getting those really mixed messages. There was a woman at the protest today carrying a sign saying, love is the cure, but she was yelling up to me and some of the other uh, reporters up on the speaker's balcony that we're all going to get executed uh, for how we're reporting this situation. So certainly some very mixed messages still going on. And take this forward if you can, Kristen. How long is this likely to go on for? Well, it went on for a lot longer than people thought, including Speaker Trevor Mallard, who thought he'd done the trick by playing Baby Shark and turning on the sprinklers early in the piece. But it wasn't only at Parliament that the media felt the heat from the protesters. The building housing the Taranaki Daily News in New Plymouth was invaded by protesters around that time too, and they were looking for the newsroom. Yeah! 
ugly emotions there. And way back at the beginning of the year, similar sentiments were unleashed by the best-known anti-vaxxer in the world, who was detained and then deported across the Tasman. There's been a new twist in the Novak Djokovic case. Court papers claim he tested positive for COVID weeks ago, and it turns out it was the same day he was pictured mingling maskless with children. Sending back the Serbian tennis star generated enough for an entire new series of Aussie Border Patrol, and Sydney tabloid The Daily Telegraph dubbed it the Novak's Jockey Viction, under the front page headline, Return of Serb. And among those with strong opinions were Channel 7's news anchors in Australia, whose off-air pre-bulletin chit-chat was captured and released online. Novak Djokovic is a lying, sneaky, asshole. He's an asshole. But they weren't the only ones undone by a hot mic this year. ACT leader David Seymour has accepted an apology from the Prime Minister who called him an arrogant prick under her breath in the House. The irony is I was asking her if there's anything she's apologised for and made right and then she called me an arrogant prick. But look, some days I'm a useless Maori, other days I'm an arrogant prick. Seymour says he's been called worse. And in the UK, Channel 4 News host Krishnan Gurumurthy was caught on tape in July calling the UK's Minister for Northern Ireland a lot worse. I'm very happy to go up against you on trust any day. <laughs> what a <laughs> Now at that time, the UK's politics was so toxic that one BBC radio presenter was giving listeners a health warning in the run-up to the news bulletins. We've got some miserable news for you and we're going to bring it to you on the hour, every hour. And even within the ruling but unravelling Tory party, the whips were using the loosest of language in front of reporters. I'm absolutely effing furious. I just don't effing care anymore. And while the UK's News at 10 self-censored the worst of those words in that quote, good old German state TV just went for it as is. Stellvertretende Fraktionschefs, das Parlament mit den Worten verließ, I'm f***ing furious and I don't f***. Well, here, Tova O'Brien told herself off for confronting Homelessness Minister Madame Davidson with a bad word. One person or even a child sleeping in a car is not acceptable. Um, but we just have <laughs> well, to be... We just no sh- it. Um, Didn't feel great about it. But in the end, Tova O'Brien backed herself on the air like this. Shit is no longer a swear word, but just because it isn't doesn't mean we should fling it at people. Just because they're not swear words anymore, I wouldn't call you a bastard, a dick or a prick, Duncan. And her co-host Duncan Garner's probably been called a lot worse too. But Tova O'Brien said worse, but censored it, earlier in 2022 when her own lawyer gave her the news that her former employer MediaWorks wouldn't allow her to go on the air when her new network, Today FM, launched with her as the big star. Uh, the restraint has been modified to be uh, expiring on the 14th of March. Okay. So they haven't completely won, but it's not great. Oh, I'm gutted. But two swears, months apart, was no match for Sean Sinnott, the father of Winter Olympic winner Zoe sadowski Sinnott. In February, he managed not just one F-bomb. Right, her younger, her younger sister, she was a f- crazy. She just went off the roof. But two in a single live News Hub at Six interview. How proud are you right now? You, your daughter's just become the first Kiwi to win a winter gold, ever. I'm pretty f- excited. We could tell. 
But the Media Watch Award for Sustained Swearing in 2022 also doubled as a pretty cutting piece of media commentary. It came from broadcaster Brodie Kane, a former TVNZ Fair Go reporter who had a fair old go at TVNZ for making and airing the reality show F-Boy Island, in which three women searching for the guy of their dreams were exposed to F-Boys not looking for a relationship. TVNZ, like the straightest up and down network boy island on tv like and let's encourage a bunch of dudes to over three chicks on television i just it just oh i just oh I'm, i just I'm couldn't still believe watch it, it. <laughs> yeah. still gonna watch it However, TVNZ CEO Simon Power subsequently told MediaWatch the F-Boy Island show was in fact all part of a balanced diet for younger viewers. Um, we believe it fits within our rangatahi strategy. Look, it helps and create some very important conversations and it may just help equip um, younger people with tools to navigate a new era of um, online dating. Fair point, though. Most people's online dates aren't arranged by TV producers putting predatory F-Boys into the mix. Now, most dates aren't on tropical islands either, except on TV. And the How Lowbrow Can You Go F-Boy Island show was exhibit A for critics complaining that the culture at TVNZ was incompatible with that of RNZ and that would undermine the public media marriage at first sight that the government has in mind for 2023. Indeed, in a now notorious recent TV interview about the merger, which critics and opponents gleefully called a train wreck, the Broadcasting and Media Minister Willie Jackson told confused Q&A show host Jack Tame this. Things might not be sustainable yeah. unless we invest now. And we have, look, you could end up being the front man for Treasure Island. You can't, you might not be. Dreams of uh, go, yeah. no, no, that's my, You might end up there because there might be no Q&A the way that we're going. Though subsequently Jack Tame told News Talk ZB he wouldn't actually mind that gig. I love that Willie threw that out as like a bad thing. I was like, yeah. okay, so hang on, I get paid to go to like some tropical location for a few weeks. <laughs> yeah. yeah, exactly. No, I think it sounds fantastic. So clearly there's a lot at stake in the ongoing saga of the new public media entity coming your way in 2023. Or possibly not. After the Prime Minister told a range of media last week, the government would be reprioritising its reforms for next year over the summer break. Well, on Midweek Media Watch this week, I took a look at that and other developments in the media merger saga. That's on the RNZ website, or you can pick it up from our podcast feed if you missed it on nights here on RNZ National last Wednesday, when we also heard how the Prime Minister was being urged to do some heavy reading over the summer about other daunting challenges ahead. The end of the world is just the beginning, since this, mm. this, is, how, this is where an American guy called Peter Zion, basically, uh, it's, it's saying countries are going to have to Uh, make their own goods, grow their own food, secure their own energy, fight their own battles, and a world in which uh, instead of being able to get stuff delivered to your door from from anywhere in the world at the door of a hat, you're going to have to wait or you're going to have to make it yourself, and it might not be quite as good as it used to be. Heavy stuff there from Business Desk's Patrick Smelly from the annual Summer Reading List for the Prime Minister. And you do wonder how journalists would react to the office of the Prime Minister telling them what to read at the beach during the break. But in the spirit of do-it-yourself... RNZ was criticised for going offshore to commission new theme music for new shows back in May, when MediaWatch's solutions-focused Hayden Donnell engaged a local composer to have a crack off the cuff at new theme music, and even had a go himself. The news is here, the news is here, look at it, the news is here, the news is here, 
Look out, it's the news. It's the news. Well, in the end, sadly, RNZ didn't find a home for Hayden's lo-fi, no-budget news theme there. However, there could be a new public media entity next year in need of some bold new sounds and branding. They say that a key role of news media is to speak truth to power, and if power is money, then, now more than ever... A lot of truth needs to be told to the tiny number of Silicon Valley moguls who have made more money than anyone in any business ever in recent years. But in 2022, some of these titans of tech have suffered a reversal of their financial fortunes, including the richest man in the world. And as Hayden Donnell now reports, they really aren't used to having their feet held to the fire by the media. In fact, one of the problems has been that the press has been too impressed by their successes and their style over the years and the promise of the innovations they've offered. Ladies and gentlemen, make some noise for the richest man in the world. That's the crowd at a show for the stand-up comedian Dave Chappelle making some noise for Elon Musk earlier this week. The billionaire Tesla chief executive might have expected a more rapturous welcome in the global tech hub of San Francisco, but things didn't get any easier. Cheers and booze, I see. Elon. Hey, Dave. The crowd went on in that fashion for nearly 10 minutes. Musk received his jeering ovation after a tumultuous first few months as the owner of the social media platform Twitter, in which he botched the rollout of a new paid-for account verification system, laid off thousands of employees in questionably legal fashion, and generally alienated a lot of people by using his account to engage in near-constant right-wing trolling. He isn't the only billionaire tech titan to suffer a precipitous fall from grace in 2022. It was a year where many of Silicon Valley's more lofty promises ran into the hard wall of reality. Mark Zuckerberg has endured a deluge of bad headlines and a sharp dip in Meta's stock price after sinking $36 billion into a virtual reality metaverse that even his own employees don't use. Sam Bankman-Fried, the so-called good guy of crypto, was arrested earlier this week in the Bahamas over alleged fraud he committed in the lead-up to the collapse of his company FTX. Elizabeth Holmes, founder of the bogus medical tech startup Theranos, was jailed for 11 years for fraud last month. The list goes on. This media negativity might be coming as something of a shock to Silicon Valley's stars. Though the amount of sceptical coverage they've received has risen over the years, many of them have enjoyed a mostly easy ride from the press and government regulators. Before its collapse, FTX was able to run ads like this one on US national TV during the Super Bowl without so much as a warning message. What's up? I'm getting into crypto. With FTX. You in? I believe I'm in, but still hate you. Understood. Is he in? Yep. Did he say he hates you? He did. I get it. That's NFL superstar Tom Brady calling Boston to get some of his former New England Patriots fans on board with the crypto exchange. 
Hopefully those guys, along with the ordinary Americans watching that ad, didn't sink too many resources into FTX at Brady's behest, given the exchange went bust just months later. As those ads ran on TV, Bankman-Fried was busy fielding patsy questions like this one at a tech conference in October. Where do you see FTX in five years? Yeah, so, you know, obviously, uh, I don't know for sure. He may not have known for sure, but he should have had an idea given the entire company collapsed a week later. Crypto, at the very least, has had a harder time from the press than some tech companies, most notably those promising transport revolutions. Here's Volvo NZ's Kobe Duggan talking to RNZ about the future of self-driving car technology back in 2016. Um, but 2020, 2021 is the territory we're talking about for level four, which is um, the first level of full autonomy, uh, which is where the driver relinquishes responsibility, so it can be emailing or texting or putting on their makeup. It does sound amazing. It's so soon. If it sounded amazing, it's possibly because the idea that people would be applying their makeup in fully autonomous vehicles on New Zealand roads by now was, to put it mildly, overly ambitious. Volvo and RNZ were hardly outliers in taking a sunny view on driverless technology back then. The Herald also reported in 2016 that self-driving cars could be on the road by the end of that year. One of its opinion writers, Paul Minette, urged the government to delay every road and public transport investment wherever possible in anticipation of the driverless revolution. And another columnist, Matt Heath, said Auckland City Rail Link would likely be obsolete by the time it opens because by then computer-coordinated driverless pods would rule the city. Six years have come and gone since then, and pandemic delays aside, there's no sign of self-driving cars on our roads. In fact, they look further away than ever. Ford and Volkswagen shut down their jointly funded autonomous vehicle startup Argo AI in October, saying the technology was still a long way from being brought to market. Other flawed transit-focused tech companies have gotten boosts from sympathetic or insufficiently critical media coverage as well, including Uber, which once said it would ease congestion in cities. In fact, the opposite has proved true. But no one has benefited more than the aforementioned Musk. His company Tesla got a rush of good press when it joined the push for driverless vehicles. It's now arguing in court that its experiment should only be labelled a failure rather than a fraud. Musk also promised to fix what he called soul-destroying traffic by building a network of tunnels underneath and between cities through his startup, The Boring Company. Though actual transport experts dismissed the idea as a farcical distraction, several cities cancelled their own transit plans and invested in the company after buying into his vision, only to see it cease all communications after running into minor regulatory obstacles. On an episode of the Vox podcast Today Explained, Curb's Alyssa Walker said the boring company saga bears eerie similarities to an episode of The Simpsons where a salesman convinces the town of Springfield to fund a shoddy monorail that promptly breaks down. And what's so funny about everybody referencing this monorail episode of The Simpsons is that the way that the boring company can build its system in Vegas is that it has to be called a monorail <laughs> so on all the documents <laughs> on all the documents it says like the boring company is now operating a monorail
no, don't! And all this is before mentioning that Musk's Neuralink startup is under federal investigation after killing 1,500 animals in experiments. Musk has got away with peddling exaggerations, half-truths and no-truths, partly because of his innate audacity and undiluted self-belief. Social media has expanded the reach of these kinds of confidence men, allowing them to build cult-like followings without having to win over so much as a slightly sceptical newspaper editor. But figures like him have also got support from gullible or access-driven parts of the press, which have uncritically repeated their utopian promises and self-aggrandizing mythologies. As late as this April, the respected tech journalist Kara Swisher was warning people not to underestimate Musk or his Twitter takeover, telling New York magazine he was a visionary and complex. Following his actual stint at Twitter, she wrote this in a tweet addressed to Musk. You may be my greatest disappointment in 25 years of covering tech. Well, you and having to interview Jeff Bezos on a Segway once. It may have taken a semi-disastrous dip into social media to dim Musk's luster for some, but a few journalists and commentators have always been distrustful of big tech's big promises. One of them is Adam Conover, who fact-checks popular misconceptions and casts scorn on powerful figures on his YouTube channel. Elon Musk, Mark Zuckerberg, Sam Bankman-Fried. For years, we've all been told that these tech titans are literal geniuses, visionary thinkers who earned their power through sheer intellect. But after what we've seen over the past few months, I think we finally need to admit once and for all that these people are idiots. And they have been the entire time. Another is Paris Marx. They've just written a book titled Road to Nowhere, What Silicon Valley Gets Wrong About Transport. They spoke to me back in October before Musk's Twitter drama about the importance of applying a highly sceptical eye to any tech billionaire who comes promising a transport utopia. For the past 10 or 15 years, whether it's Uber and ride-hailing services or autonomous vehicles or, you know, hyperloops or all these other sorts of things, you know, there were a lot of visions for the future of transportation that were sold to us by very powerful and influential people and companies in the tech industry. Um, they were supposed to solve a lot of problems that everyone recognizes exist in the transport system. And the tech industry offered us technological solutions to say, you know, we don't need to have difficult political conversations or discussions around transportation. All we need is to wait for technology to improve a little bit, and then we can solve these things. Do you think in general reporters have been sceptical enough of these promises from tech companies? No, definitely not. And I, I think that we have seen a bit more skepticism, as I said, in recent years, um, especially since around 2018, when the Cambridge Analytica revelations came out around Facebook. And that started with a lot of criticism around Facebook, but I think spread out to a certain degree to a number of other tech companies as well, as there was a desire to look at them more critically, look at the actions that they've taken um, in a more critical light. For a long time, there was a real desire to buy into what Silicon Valley, what these tech companies were promising us. And now it's really incumbent on us to keep asking those questions as companies keep making big outlandish promises, as we've seen in the past few years with cryptocurrencies or the metaverse, there was a much more critical orientation toward these proposals from the very beginning. And I think that really helped us to realize that a lot of the promises that were being made in real time were never going to be realized and were 
were never as emancipatory as a lot of these companies were claiming. Um, and there's also a desire to, you know, be close to some of these companies that have the kind of access so that you can do the reporting um, on them. And so there are, there are conflicts there as well. Yeah, well, one of the most pervasive recent ideas in the media, electric cars are going to save us. They'll decarbonise the transport system. They'll allow us to continue living as we do now. And that's prevalent in New Zealand. You see it from our columnists in the media. It's advanced by major political parties. You don't think that's correct. Can you explain why? Yeah, um, I think that electric cars certainly have a part to play in this transition, right? We do need to reduce the emissions of the transport system. And in societies like Canada, where I am, or New Zealand, you know, where you are, um, we are not going to get away from driving altogether overnight, right? This is not something that's going to happen. So the electric car will have a part to play in this transition. But then the question is, you know, how much energy do we put into just converting the vehicle fleet from internal combustion engines over to battery electric? And how much energy do we put into trying to ensure that people don't need cars altogether to get around? And I would argue that the more sustainable path and, and the better path that we should take is to try to incentivize or try to build our communities in such a way that as many people as possible have real alternatives to driving into the car so that they don't need to buy an electric car altogether and can also ditch um, their internal combustion vehicle too. And so I think that's really the discussion right now as to which path we take. You know, do we continue on this road where we're dependent on cars, where most people have to own and drive cars just in order to get around? Or do we offer those people real alternatives through transit, through cycling infrastructure, through designing our communities in ways that are more walkable so that they don't need those cars altogether? You've listed a whole bunch of, I guess, failures of tech promises in the past. There's more in the book. How should reporters actually amend their practices in light of seeing these repeated failures from the tech companies? How should they report these things? Yeah, it's difficult, right? Because one thing that we need to acknowledge, of course, is that there has been a lot of pressure on the revenue of media organizations in recent years, um, you know, particularly with companies like Facebook and Google taking away advertising revenue. The companies can say something, can put out a press release, can make an announcement, and then whatever they say just kind of gets repeated in these stories. And I would hope that at least in future, now that we recognize and we can see that there are often many downsides to what these companies are proposing, and they are often unable to fulfill the promises that they're making to us, you know, when reporting these announcements or these claims by these companies, that journalists are at least trying to seek out um, a few critical sources to give an alternative opinion on what these companies are claiming um, and to actually see what the likely impact is going to be rather than just what they want us to believe they're going to be. Just like a lot of problems, does it come down in part to economic incentives? Just like tech companies have economic incentives, journalists do too. They want to produce clickable stories that get readership. And these kind of magical-sounding tech solutions, are, in a way, they're more interesting and clickable than just writing build more rail lines, create more regular and reliable public transport. 
Yeah, which is unfortunate, right? <laughs> but certainly, you know, because of the claims that these tech companies can make, because they can be so inflated, they're certainly much more exciting. And they also kind of build on ideas that a lot of people have about what the future should look like, right? There, there have been a lot of science fiction stories that have imagined the future in a particular way. And a lot of these tech companies and, and founders and what have you are inspired by these stories and these ideas that come out of science fiction. And so it's then kind of convenient to look at them and say, oh, you know, this is the future we were promised. This is the future that um, these these companies and these these tech leaders are building. But I really think that we need to come back to fundamentals and, and ask, are these things going to be realized? Are they actually going to solve the problems that they claim to solve? And what are the, especially when we think about the transport system, you know, what are the forms of transportation? What are the interventions in the transport system that we can make that will really solve the actual problems that people face in getting around. And often it's not the types of things that the tech companies are proposing. You're put in charge of all the media coverage of transport today. <laughs> what do you change? I'm, I'm not an editor or anything like that. Um, but yeah, I think I would certainly want to see a greater focus on the way that people get around the issues that exist in terms of transportation now, like a greater focus on the difficulties that people have in getting around the city. The disabled people, people that can't drive, that kind of thing. Exactly, exactly. The people who can't easily, um, you know, use the system that we have today or that are also or that even though they might have a car, still find it difficult to get around. You know, obviously, we've seen petrol prices go up a lot in, in recent months. You know, there's a question as to how much they will come back down. But there's also just the general cost of owning a car in general, whether it's the cost of owning it, the cost of insuring it, the cost of fueling it up, the cost of maintenance, all these sorts of things that go along with it. Um, you know, should we keep expecting people to pay so much of their income toward transportation or should we be ensuring that we have, you know, good public transportation systems or good cycling infrastructure so that they can get around in a much more affordable way? Um, I think I would want to see much more of a focus on those things and also to have more of that history in our reporting, right? To make sure that people understand that, you know, the car is is not there just because uh, everyone desired it and loved it. And, and that's the reason it was embraced. But because there are certain, you know, commercial interests that benefit from us all being stuck in a car. Um, and it's no surprise that now that we're having this debate, um, it's becoming controversial when we suggest that people should move away from having cars, from owning cars, from having to pay all these various costs for ownership um, and should just have a service that's provided by the government so that they can get around. Hey, thank you so much for joining me, Paris. Absolutely. It's my pleasure. That was Paris Marx, author of the book Road to Nowhere, talking to Hayden Donnell there about the often unfulfilled promises of tech gurus and Silicon Valley companies and the need for media to scrutinise the seductive claims they make about their innovations. That's all for Media Watch for 2022, though Hayden Donnell will be back one last time with Midweek Media Watch after the 10pm news next Wednesday, talking to Karen Hay on nights. And Media Watch will be back again in late January 2023 here on RNZ National.